Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for entrusting us with your precious gospel, which assures us that there is glory at the end of our suffering. Help me now to rightly handle your word of truth. By your Spirit, grant us all clear understanding of what faithful gospel ministry looks like, that we may raise up such faithful leaders for our church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, few things are more motivating than a final evaluation. Uh, nothing can make a student work harder than the fact that their final exams are approaching. Anyone got exams coming? <laughs> uh, nothing will make a worker perform harder than the, the annual performance review that's just around the corner. Uh, the prospect of a final evaluation, reward or failure, can be a very motivating Thing. And I think the same is true in the Christian life as well, because one day we will all face the ultimate final evaluation, if you like. Uh, on Judgment Day, we will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ in all his risen glory, and we will give an account for our lives. We long to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. We fear to hear the words, you wicked and slothful servant, cast the worthless servant out into the outer, outer darkness. But there is going to be a final evaluation. We will stand before the Lord Jesus to give account for our lives. And as those who have been saved through the death of Christ, we ought to long to be approved, to be found faithful in our ministry. And here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul answers the question for us, what does an approved gospel worker look like? What, what is faithful gospel ministry all about? And we're challenged to be such people ourselves and to look for such people to lead our churches. I think it's a very timely passage for you guys as you are looking for a new pastor. Well, in chapter 1 we saw Paul's urgent call to guard the gospel. Paul himself was in prison. He was unsure if he'd be released. And Paul laments that all in Asia have turned away from him, people like Demas that we meet in chapter 4, verse 9. Paul knew that the gospel is only one generation away from extinction. And if the gospel was to survive fierce persecution from the outside and a false teaching and apostasy on the inside, then people like Timothy needed to be unafraid and unashamed, willing to suffer for the gospel so that it could be guarded. And Paul writes this letter to his beloved gospel partner, Timothy, his child in the faith, to guard the gospel entrusted to him. Now, we might ask, you know, if, if all have really turned away from Paul, as he says in chapter 1, then what difference will one man, even a great man like Timothy, really make in guarding the gospel? And here in chapter 2, we see strategy for how even one man like Timothy can make a difference. So he begins by reminding Timothy, first point, of the nature of faithful gospel ministry. The nature of faithful gospel ministry. And the first characteristic of faithful gospel ministry is strength. It says in verse 1, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, in chapter 1, Paul has made it pretty clear, I think, how difficult faithful gospel ministry will really be. Uh, 
He'll, if Timothy signs up for this, he's going to be opposed. He's definitely going to be going to suffer. He may end up alone and deserted like Paul did, even in prison. Uh, if someone is going to be a faithful gospel minister in such an environment, then they're going to need to be strong, to be resilient. But, but not by relying on their own strength. No, no pastor or leader is sufficient in themselves to guard the gospel. The task is just too big, too hard. There's too many opponents. One person can't do it in their own strength. Timothy would certainly fail. No, Paul says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It's the gospel itself that will give him the strength to go on. And it's a marvelous truth, I think, that heads up this passage. The very ministry that Christ calls us to he supplies the grace needed to complete it. He doesn't leave us on our own. He gives us his, his spirit from chapter 1 to empower us. And here he gives us his gospel, his grace, to strengthen us. Uh, faithful gospel ministry uh, is ministry that is strengthened by the gospel. The, the second uh, characteristic we see here of faithful gospel ministry is multiplication. Multiplication. It says in verse 2, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Pick on a few slides, I think. Now, Paul likens his uh, ministry here to a relay race. Uh, and the whole point of a relay race is that the runners uh, pass the baton from one runner to the next, until it reaches to the finish line. Uh, in a relay race, if you uh, drop the baton, uh, as the United States team did in the 2008 Olympic Games, I'm sure some of you remember that very well, then you lose, and uh, you feel very <laughs> sad about it. Paul had received the baton from Jesus, and Paul had passed the baton to Timothy. We saw in chapter 1 that he had entrusted him with the gospel. And now Timothy's job was to pass on the baton to the next generation, not to just drop it on the ground. And there are four generations here. There's Paul himself, uh, what you've heard from me. Then uh, there's Timothy, uh, that he's entrusting it to. Then he says, uh, entrust to uh, faithful men, that's the third generation, who will be able to teach others also. That's the fourth generation. See, Paul has a, has a big vision here. It's not just about one man, Timothy, but Timothy is to pass on the gospel to people who will pass it on, who will pass it on, who will pass it on, and it will multiply. Uh, see, one of the key tasks of faithful gospel workers is to identify, recruit, train, encourage the next generation of gospel workers. Faithful gospel ministry involves multiplying the gospel by entrusting the gospel to others. And so what that means is if we are a, a leader or, or we're involved in some ministry in the church, we must never do that ministry alone. We must always be asking, who can I train to do this ministry with me? Who can take over this ministry from me when I'm gone? There's no point to, to have a grand ministry that you've built around you and it's all everything's dependent upon you 
And then when you go away on holidays or you move to another church, the whole ministry dissolves because it's all just been about one person, especially in an international church like this one where there's so many people going to and fro all the time. It, it just can't work like that. We must be constantly looking for faithful gospel workers that we can entrust to do the ministry with us. That's how it will grow. Uh, you and I can only have so much time in a week. There's only so many uh, Bible studies we can do or Sunday school lessons we can prepare or, 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 or music sessions we can prepare. We need more people if the church is going to grow. Indeed, if more churches are going to be planted and grow. But notice the kind of people that are to be chosen here. We're told that they are to be faithful men. These people are to be people who've proven themselves trustworthy in their doctrine, in their ministry, in their life. They need to be shown to be faithful to God's word, faithful in their character. Because I think too often we, uh, we tend to focus on someone's willingness to do something or their gifts in doing something rather than their beliefs and, and their character. We're so delighted that someone's willing to you know, fill in a spot on the roster that will just take, take anyone to do it. It can't be like that. They must be faithful people. And they must be able to teach others. He says, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. And so before we invite someone to a leadership position, such as a pastor or an elder or Bible study leader or Sunday school teacher or whatever it is, we should test their gifts. What is their grasp of Christian doctrine? Can they faithfully teach God's word? Can they explain the gospel to a non-Christian and so on? They must be able to teach others also. So faithful gospel ministry is a ministry of multiplication, identifying the next generation of men and women who will teach the next generation, the next generation, and the next one. I remember those who, who did that for me. Uh, when I was a teenager, there was a youth minister who took the time uh, to, to, to meet with me, to teach me the gospel, to train me how to serve. My first ministry in church was PowerPoint, actually, clicking the buttons. Uh, there was an FES staff worker on my campus who met with me to read the Bible every week for three years. And then he was followed by other people who challenged me to consider full-time gospel ministry, who gave me a heart for international students and so on, which, which led me to Malaysia in the end. Uh, that's how it happens. That's how the gospel grows. As we identify people, we invest in their lives, we teach them and we help them to teach others. Faithful gospel ministry is a ministry of multiplication. The third key feature that we're shown here is suffering. Faithful gospel ministry is a ministry of suffering. Verse uh, 2 says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Gospel ministry is a battle, and it's one that's going to be hard. Uh, Paul gives three of the hardest working jobs that anyone can do in the following verses. He talks about a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. He wants to show what faithfulness is going to look like. And one of the things that holds all three in common is, is hard work and suffering. And so the firstly, there's the single-minded soldier we read in verse 4. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one 
who enlisted here. I think it goes without saying that a soldier will face uh, suffering. Uh, no one signs up to be a soldier and goes to war expecting that they're going to have a very you know, happy and comfortable existence. But the focus here is not so much on the suffering, but on the single-minded focus. See, a soldier's one and only goal is to please the commanding officer. And so we're told that they throw off all other civilian pursuits that would threaten to distract them from that one thing that they must do. And so the faithful gospel minister will not uh, let a hobby or a career or Facebook or social media or an obsession with uh, Korean drama, I think a lot of Malaysians like that, <laughs> uh, or anything else, take them away from their focus uh, in, in serving Jesus. Now, of course, all those are good things to do. It's, you know, there's no problem to have a hobby or to go on Facebook and so on. But the faithful gospel minister will be devoted to teaching uh, and shepherding God's people. They will cast off anything that gets in the way of that because the reward is worth it. Uh, they will receive the pleasure of the commanding officer, i.e. Jesus. The second illustration he gives here is the law-abiding athlete in verse 5. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The Christian life is regularly likened to a running race, uh, a marathon that we... Uh, we must run with perseverance to get the prize at the end, the prize of heaven. And an athlete, of course, is meant to work hard day after day, getting up early, getting to the gym, watching their diet, uh, putting in the hours of, of training. You don't get to the Olympic Games by lying on the couch and watching Netflix, right? You've got to work hard. So the point is that you can only receive the prize if you compete fairly, if you compete according to the rules. Uh, one of the other uh, controversies at the Rio Olympic Games was the banning of the entire Russian team uh, from the Games because of, of drug use, and I think that's continued on for the following Games. It's the, it's the same with gospel ministry. There are no shortcuts in gospel ministry. We need to work hard at knowing God's Word, we need to work hard at praying for other people. We can't make shortcuts downloading our sermons off Google or skimping on our quiet times or, or giving in to moral failures and, and, and so on. The faithful minister is to be righteous. They have to do it God's way. There's no other way. But once again, there's a reward for faithfulness. There's a victor's crown, crown of righteousness, Paul talks about in chapter 4. Thirdly, Paul talks about the hard-working farmer here in verse 6. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Now, again, farming, I'm not much of an expert on that, but I hear that it's very hard work. You have to wake up very, very early in the morning. You work all day, and you're exhausted by night. The word for hard-working here, it means toil, it means labor, it means struggle. And that's exactly what gospel ministry is like, especially if you're a pastor. You know, there's no fixed working hours. Uh, there's always people to meet. There's sermons to write. There's books to be read and, and, and so on. Uh, and of course, it's all joyful and wonderful, but it's still work. 
uh, and, and, and it's hard work as well. Uh, Paul uh, regularly says in his letters, I worked harder than all of them. In Romans chapter 16, he commends those who worked hard in the Lord. Uh, and so once again, there, there is the word that we, we're, going to, we're going to suffer. Uh, but there's also a reward. Right? The hardworking farmer is the first to share in the crops. That might mean monetary support, perhaps. Uh, but perhaps it's also talking about the harvest of God's people. In other words, the, the gospel worker will see some, the, the fruit of it. They will see God's work uh, in people's lives. So that's the third characteristic of faithful gospel ministry. They need to be strengthened. It's a ministry of multiplication. And it's one of suffering, of hard work, looking forward to a reward. The final characteristic he gives here is reflection in verse 7. He says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now Paul invites us to think hard about what he's been writing in these verses, to reflect and to consider with a promise that God himself will help us to understand as we do so. I think as we reflect, we realize that all these things have one thing in common. Right? The single-minded soldier, the law-abiding athlete, the hard-working farmer, they all speak of faithfulness and hard work with a reward that comes at the end. Here is Paul's point. Work faithfully for the gospel, and no matter what hardship you must face in doing it, the reward will come. At the end, your master will be pleased. You'll receive your reward. And so having explained, I guess, the nature of faithful gospel ministry here, he now turns, this is the second point, to the reward for faithful gospel ministry, the reward of faithful gospel ministry. And the, the basic point that he makes here is that suffering now leads to glory later. Suffering now leads to glory Later, And he begins with the glorification of Jesus in verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. It's an interesting gospel summary. He doesn't talk about how Jesus died for our sins, how he was crucified, he took the wrath of God for our sins, so that we can be reconciled to God and adopted into his family. He could have talked about all of those things here, but he doesn't. He just says... Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, offspring of, of David. The point is, yes, Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. He was raised again. And his resurrection marked him out as the Christ, right? the one descended from David, who would be God's absolute, universal, eternal king. He would be the one who would rule over all nations forever. So yes, Jesus suffered, but it was glory that ultimately he enjoyed at the end. The point is that suffering and even death cannot stop the spread of the gospel. He goes on in verse 9. This, remember Jesus Christ, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. No matter what happens, no matter what Satan does to hinder the gospel, it continues to go out. We see the spread of the gospel in the book of Acts, especially with Paul, arrested, stoned, imprisoned, 
flogged, shipwrecked, bitten by snakes, all kinds of things happened to Paul. But the gospel keeps going out, going out, going out, going out. Even he's here in prison, not sure if he'll be released. He can still write to Timothy and the gospel grows. It's remembering the glorification of Jesus that will enable us to endure. It's helping us to remember that suffering will not stop the ultimate spread of the gospel. They will help us, like Paul, to be bold and persevering. Indeed, it's remembering the glory that awaits for God's people that ought to motivate us in pressing on for the sake of the gospel. He says this in verse 10. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Notice that he talks about Christians there as the elect. Elect means those who are chosen by God. So in chapter 1, he chose them not because of their works, but before the foundation of the world. Another reminder of God's sovereignty and salvation. But we see here how suffering now leads to glory later. As, as Paul endures in the proclamation of the gospel, God's elect, his chosen people, have the opportunity to receive salvation, ultimately glory uh, in heaven. So this is helpful to remember, especially if we are finding uh, leadership hard in the church, uh, or our ministry is, uh, has been difficult, uh, perhaps as a Sunday school teacher or some other ministry we're involved in. There will often be times that we feel like it's enough. You know, it's time to take a break. It's time to to give up. Other people can do the ministry. I've done my part already. And here it's so important to remember why you are doing it. Why are you doing this ministry in the first place? And Paul says here, he will endure everything, even prison, suffering, whatever, for the sake of the elect. And he, we serve so that others will be saved. And they will receive glory in the end. It's not about me. And so remembering that will help me to press on when I feel like giving up. And it's when I start to forget, why am I doing this? Well, that's when I'm going to start losing the joy and feeling burned, burned out. Well, in verse 11 to 13, we're once again pushed to consider the future. Verse 11, the saying is trustworthy for... If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. See, how we live now will determine what happens to us later. Yeah? The truth behind these verses is that we are united with Christ. So what happens to him is what happens to us. And so when Jesus died, our old life died with him. And as Christ was raised to reign on high, so too will we reign with him one day if we remain faithful through suffering. But these verses pose a question to us. Will we be faithful or will we be faithless? Will we endure or will we deny him. And there's a reminder here that some people will deny Christ. Some people will be faithless. He's given some examples in chapter 1. 
And there is horrible consequences of that. We deny him. He denies us. God will still be faithful. He will still achieve his plans and purposes for the world. The failures of his people won't stop God from achieving his purposes. But how we live now will determine what happens to us later. So there's the reward for gospel ministry. We suffer now, looking forward to glory later. The rest of this passage, Paul then turns to the requirements of faithful gospel ministry. The requirements of faithful gospel ministry. He, he shows the kind of characteristics that Timothy needs, and I guess the kind of characteristics that he's looking for in these faithful men he needs to pass the gospel to. And, and the first requirement is that we must rightly handle the word of truth. Must rightly handle the word of truth. He says in verse 14, Remind them of these things. Charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. He's saying rather than getting into fruitless discussions, you know, maybe about what colour the curtain should be, or something like that. He must keep reminding the congregation of the gospel. I, I don't know how many needless uh, episodes of church politics have destroyed churches and turned people away from the Lord Jesus. I've been in a lot of churches over the years. It happens a lot. Christian leaders need to focus on teaching and preaching the gospel. And that means they must stand firm in the truth of God's word and they must not give into the temptation to change the message. They must make sure that they, they do not mishandle the scriptures. Paul says here, do your best. He's saying strive for it. Work hard at it. Understanding this book is not something that you can just you know, wake up and read it once and then that, 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 that's it. I suddenly understand everything. Faithfully understanding God's word means I need to put in the hours, prayerfully thinking about it, writing the sermon, writing the Bible study, preparing the Sunday school lesson, and so on. And so if uh, you are a Christian leader here, many of us are, will you strive to be this kind of worker? Uh, perhaps you need more training so that you can understand this book better. It's crucial that those who teach God's word understand what it's saying. Uh, not just a few courses here or there every now and then, but systematic training, theological education, because a failure to teach this word faithfully will have disastrous results in the end. So that's what he is to do, and then he's told what to avoid next in verse 16. Avoid irreverent babble. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who swerve from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. So if you don't put, your, put in your best to understand God's word, then the danger is you become like these guys. Irreverent babble is speech that doesn't promote the gospel. It, it, it might be heresies, like the teaching of Hymenaeus and Philetus here. 
Uh, Paul had already mentioned the false teaching of these guys back in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, Paul had actually expelled these people from the church. That's how serious their false teaching is. But it seems nothing has changed. Uh, these people are continuing to spread their false teaching with disastrous effects. It's very graphic, isn't it? It says uh, their teaching is like gangrene. I mean, you picture a leg covered in gangrene, maybe from one of those World War uh, documentaries you saw. As it spreads on the leg, everything just rots and dies wherever it goes. That's what false teaching is like. Gangrene. It, it spreads rapidly and everywhere it touches. Blackness, death, destruction. Now Hymenaeus and Philetus, we're told, were teaching that the resurrection had already happened. Presumably they weren't talking about Christ's resurrection because uh, I, I guess they believed that that had, had happened. But what, it's, what they were probably teaching is saying that, that all the, the blessings of the resurrection, uh, the blessings of the new creation, they're all available now. The resurrection age has already happened. And so perhaps they were saying, look, there's no need to, to suffer in, in the Christian life. You can be victorious. You can be successful. And I think when you put it in those terms, uh, it's not hard to see similar cancerous teachings that go around the church today, go around the churches in Malaysia. Uh, teachings like the prosperity gospel, for example, that says, well, if you trust in Jesus, you'll be healthy, you'll be wealthy, uh, you'll be happy now. Okay? They're promising all the blessings from the end in the presence. There are other heresies that go around, you know, those that deny the uniqueness of Christ and say all religions lead to God, uh, the teaching that God doesn't care about your sexuality, God endorses LGBT, these kind of things is going around. And Paul warns that teachings like those, false gospels, false teachings like these, they destroy the church, they spread like angry, they hurt the faith of God's people. And more often than not, they flow from poor handling of the Bible. Taking a verse here, a verse there, taking it out of its context to mean something totally different to what the author intended. Twisting it to mean what they want it to mean instead of what God actually says. And it may seem very biblical because, well, they're quoting Bible verses. But it's really poor Bible handling. And it has awful results. Verse 16 says it leads to more and more ungodliness. Verse 18 says it upsets the faith of some. All saying here, right theology matters because theology always affects practice. What you believe will always affect how you live. But I wonder. Uh, how many of us here actually know the Bible well enough to be able to tell the difference between faithful Bible teaching and heretical Bible teaching? How many of us can walk into a Christian bookshop and tell apart the quality books that are going to help you grow in Christ, you know, from the, the Joel Osteen and Joyce Meyer books, which are going to lead you away from him? How many of us can listen to a sermon on YouTube and be able to tell the difference between a faithful sermon that's going to grow you to maturity in Christ 
and a false teacher who's, who's full of irreverent babble. It's urgent that we ourselves grow in our knowledge of the Bible or it will have disastrous effects for our church if we end up with leaders who don't handle the Bible properly. Yet, even in the face of false teaching, we don't need to despair because God still rules his church. And I think that's the point in verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The first quotation there, it affirms the sovereignty of God. The Lord knows who his faithful servants are and those who are not. This quotation is from Numbers 16, uh, where Korah and 250 of the chiefs of Israel assemble themselves against Moses with a different message to his. This is their message. Everyone is holy, and everyone can be priests, not just you, Moses. We want to be priests too. And I don't know if you remember how that chapter ends. Well, it ends with Korah and Dathan and their families swallowed up in the earth, and the 250 uh, of these chiefs burnt up with fire that comes out from the altar. And Moses and Aaron, God's true servants, vindicated. There's the point. God knows who are his faithful servants and who aren't, and he brings judgment on false teaching. And so our response ought to be to depart from such iniquity, from such false teaching. And that's the second quotation. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Before the destruction of Korah and Dathan in that chapter, Moses says to the people in verse 26, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away. Uh, with all their sins. We also see a, a very similar quotation in Isaiah 52.11 as God's people leave from Babylon carrying the, the, the vessels of the temple back to Jerusalem. They were to make sure that they remained holy and pure. The point is, we must have nothing to do with false teaching and the sins of false teachers that results. And so the quickest test of a false teaching is to look at the character of the, of the teacher. As Jesus says, you will know a tree from its fruits. A good tree brings good fruits. A bad tree brings bad fruits. Uh, and in this way, Paul is transitioning to the second requirement for faithful ministry in this chapter, and that is living a holy life. Yes, you must... Know this book, rightly handle it, teach it faithfully, but she must also live it out, and the two are connected. Uh, Paul gives an extended metaphor for us in verse 20. In a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honourable use, some for dishonourable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonourable, he will be a vessel for honourable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now, I, I don't own any uh, kind of china plates or cups, but maybe some of us here uh, you know, have a special uh, cabinet where we keep the special plates and cups uh, for a special occasion. And you don't use them for, for daily use, 
uh, for your regular meals. You, you only bring them out when, when the special guests turn up uh, to the house. I think the point of this metaphor is that if we are to be useful in the Lord's ministry, we must be holy. We must cleanse ourselves from what's dishonorable and impure, like the false teachers we've been talking about. Then we'll be set apart for good work. Uh, there was a former mentor of mine in Australia. He used to say that godly leaders lead people in godliness. Ungodly leaders lead people into ungodliness. He's trying to say that often we focus on the gifts, on, on, on the gifts of the person, how charismatic they are, and so on. But ultimately, it's the character that counts. You can be a very gifted leader, but if you're ungodly, guess what? You're going to be gifted in leading people into ungodliness. You can be a, you know, a very impressive and eloquent speaker, but if you don't know the Bible properly, you're just going to be very gifted at leading people astray from Jesus. You see. Godly leaders lead people to godliness. Ungodly leaders lead people to ungodliness. Another way of putting that is to say ungodly leaders destroy churches. Ungodly leaders destroy churches. When a pastor is caught in adultery or stealing from the church, those are the two most common things that happen. Or sometimes they get caught in uh, deceptive lying uh, or some kind of addiction like alcohol. When that happens to a Christian leader, it destroys the church. To be useful to the Lord, we must live a holy life. I, I wonder if you really believe that to be true. Because I think so often our, uh, our criteria for ministry leader uh, relates to their teaching, how outgoing they are, how gifted they are. But if that's our criteria, we'll always end up with the wrong, the wrong people, you see. If you excuse ungodliness in a leader, pornography addiction, deceptiveness, greed, uh, gossiping all the time, in the end, that kind of leader will end up doing more harm to the church than good. To preserve the gospel and build the church, we need godly leaders and not just gifted leaders. And so as Paul closes this chapter, he urges Timothy to pursue godliness. It says in verse 22, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with all those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Notice the two stages here. There's flee and there's pursue. Don't run towards the evil passions. Pursue the good ones. Righteousness, faith, love. It's not just avoiding the negative. It's pursuing the positive as well. And he seems to have a particular thing on view here, uh, and that is not getting involved in quarrelsome arguments. Remember, because the particular issue that he's really dealing with here is this false, these false teachers. We'll see them come up again next week. Verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. His, his point here is that look, young children will get into fights all the time. Uh, my children love to fight about just about anything, you know. So long as uh, one of the kids has it, then all the other kids need to have it uh, as as well. But sometimes as adults, we don't grow out of this fighting. We continue to quarrel even when it does more harm 
than good. But the faithful gospel minister won't be known for constant fighting and friction, weighing in on every controversy, winning every argument. We're told they will be kind, patient, and gentle. And it's worth reflecting. Are these the qualities that dominate my life as a leader of God's people? Yes, they need to be able to teach. Yes, they need to be able to warn the flock of, of false teaching like Paul does here. But the goal is not to win every argument. It's to restore people to repentance. It says God, verse 25, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. They may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured to do his will. If you treat them with patience, kindness, gentleness, maybe God will bring them back. So let's wrap up then. What does it look like to be a faithful, approved gospel worker? We've seen a few things. There are one who will pass on the baton to other people. There'll be one who endures suffering. They'll remember Jesus and look forward from suffering to glory. They'll rightly handle the word of truth. And they'll live a godly life in response. So I wonder, are those the, the marks of your own life and ministry? Um, if you do see those things, then maybe you are the kind of person that Malaysia needs, who will be courageous, who will step forward who will teach the truth of the gospel, who will pass it on to others so that it can be guarded and grow. And if it's not you, if you think, oh, I don't have those characteristics in my life, it's worth asking, why not? And what steps am I taking to grow in these things, to know God's word better, to live it out, to pass it on to others? I can't just say, oh, that's just for other people. There is a judgment day coming there is a final evaluation. We will give an account to the Lord Jesus for our lives. There is glory for all who persevere in trusting in Christ and serve him faithfully to the end. And there's a judgment for false teachers, for those who have given themselves to ungodly lives as a result. So we need to reflect. Will I be a faithful servant Will I look for such faithful servants in the church? We all long to hear those words from our master. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Pray that you and the leaders of this church will be faithful, good, gospel workers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that there is such a great need for the gospel to be entrusted to faithful people who will teach others also. Lord, we pray that you would raise up such approved workers for this great work. We pray that you would raise up people who rightly handle the word of truth, people who live godly lives, we pray that each one of us in the ministries in which we serve would intentionally seek to identify, encourage and equip the next generation of faithful people who will serve the gospel in their lives. We pray that by your grace 
you would multiply the gospel workers in this church and that from this church many would be sent to serve other churches beyond. Lord, we know that none of this can happen unless we are strengthened by your grace. And so we humbly seek your help. When the ministry is hard, when we don't know if we can keep going, help us to persevere, looking to Jesus and the hope of glory that awaits. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.